Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, a CME podcast series where each week we translate today's late-breaking clinical research and news into tomorrow's practice. I'm Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and editor-in-chief of the 5-Minute Clinical Consult series. Be sure to visit primed.com podcast after the discussion for more information about today's article and to claim CME-CE credit. You are seeing a 37-year-old person in your office who is complaining of epigastric discomfort for the last couple of weeks, occasionally associated with heartburn symptoms as well as a sour taste in the back of her throat. Otherwise, she's been well. She has no trouble swallowing, normal bowel movements, no blood in her stool. Given her history and benign exam, you believe that she is suffering from gastroesophageal reflux. What's the best management approach? Should she be referred for endoscopy, H. pylori testing, or should you prescribe a PPI empirically with behavior modifications? Hi, this is Frank Domino, family physician and professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. And joining me to discuss dyspepsia is Dr. Robert Baldor, professor and founding chair for the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, Bay State. Good morning, Bob. Morning, Frank. It's good to be back. Great to have you here. So I I occasionally have a little bit of heartburn, but before we get too deep into into the paper we're talking about today, can you remind us a little bit about what's GERD, what's dyspepsia, what's heartburn? Yeah, those those are great questions. So uh, this paper actually looked at uh, dyspepsia. And so dyspepsia is really just an, un, it's one of those terms, right, dyspepsia, uh, bad digestion. So it's uncomfortable sensation in the abdomen during or after a meal. And typically the symptoms are things like bloating or gas, sometimes nausea, feeling a fullness, can have a lot of uh, burping with it, and sometimes pain. Now it can be accompanied by heartburn. Heartburn is when the acid is refluxing out of the stomach into the esophagus, and so you get a burning sensation in the chest. And if it's real bad, of course, you get the sour taste in the back of your mouth. So dyspepsia includes really uh, uh, heartburn as, as, as part of that. Now, as you're thinking about that, well, then what's a differential diagnosis? What's causing dyspepsia? Well, we think about an infection, H. pylori. It could be an ulcer. Could be GERD, which is a gastrointestinal uh, refluxing, which can progress to cause other problems. Um, it could be cancer, but that's rare. It could be gastroparesis, and gastroparesis is because it's just slow emptying of the stomach, and you got to be thinking diabetics. Diabetes is part of that. Could be a component of irritable bowel syndrome, but there'll be other things going on. Pancreatitis, obviously, you're probably in a lot more pain with that. Thyroid dysfunction, people don't often think about, can be a cause. And finally, obviously, medications. Um, now, oftentimes what will happen, though, is we have this thing called functional dyspepsia. And so functional dyspepsia is where sort of you kind of did your workup, you haven't found anything, but patients are still having those nonspecific complaints. They go on for a number of times. Well, that's functional dyspepsia. All right. Well, when I think about patients who come in with dyspepsia, um, I was always taught to think about uh, worst-case scenarios and ruling them out. What are the red flags around dyspepsia? Yeah, that's a good point. I think we really need to be thinking about that in primary care. But it's a matter of making sure that we're not jumping and thinking zebras all the time, but being aware of what red flags are or, or warning signs. So for dyspepsia, it's if they're having any accompanying other things going on with it. Number one, dysphagia. Dysphagia, trouble swallowing. That's not good. Have they had any weight loss? Obviously, weight loss we think about with all these. Anemia. Anemia. And then the final one for this is a new onset after the age of 60. So if they're older and are having these problems, they really haven't had it, that's a red flag. So when you're seeing those sort of red flags, you should probably be thinking early on, 
endoscopy or some sort of a more aggressive workup. But it's unusual to have those accompanying uh, signs and symptoms. So, so now that we've kind of ruled out the, 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 the unlikely and uncommon things, what's the best data that says about how we about, go about addressing dyspepsia? Well, that brings me to this, uh, this publication that was, uh, that was just uh, done here, and I think it's... Uh, was uh, published in the uh, BMJ here. And what they actually did is uh, they did a network meta-analysis trying to look at uh, comparing different approaches and treatment for somebody coming in with dyspepsia. And what they looked at was they, had, they found 15 randomized control trials, over 6,000 patients that were involved in this, adult patients. And they found what they did, the strategies were prompt endoscopy. Let's just take a look. Everything was compared to prompt endoscopy, by the way. Or was it a test for H. pylori? followed by endoscopy for positive results? Or was it a test and treat where you tested for the presence of H. pylori? And the studies had a variety of ways of doing that, either uh, urea breath testing um, in, uh, or serology, and then following up with, with treatment for that. I will say, by the way, that the data is really out there. If you're going to do testing, you should do urea breath testing. Um, that's the guidelines are uh, saying that's the that's test to do. Really, the serology is uh, whether you're doing a stool or, or, or blood uh, testing. It's just uh, uh, not adequate for the acute uh, uh, situation. They also compared this to empiric acid suppression. And the studies use a variety of things to suppress uh, acid, uh, ranitidine, omeprazole, and lisoprazole. And uh, isomeprazole, sorry. Uh, those were also in some of the studies that were done. Or symptom-based management, which is a lot of what I do up front with these folks. It's sort of just lifestyle changes and maybe put them on an uh, uh, antacid uh, as, as well. So they looked at all these studies that had that, and they tried to say, which one of these is the best? And as they looked at the studies, of course, everything was a little uh, broad within the, uh, the studies. And they, um, and they looked at secondary assessments where... Uh, likelihood of receiving an endoscopy, dissatisfaction with the management, and rates of cancer detection, which we, we talked about a little bit uh, early. What one? What, what one? Test and treat. Well, it turns out, actually, if you really look at the data, everything won. Everything <laughs> <laughs> Because what they were looking at was a year later, did you, were you, did you eradicate symptoms or not? And really, everything was very good, uh, close to 90% of eradicating symptoms. What was best, though, was the uh, test and treat. Uh, that ranked, uh, that ranked uh, uh, first. Okay, so um, sounds like most any approach will work, but test and treat was, was that one that seemed to come out the best. Um, what about patients? And, and you also mentioned cancer. Um, what worked with regards to that? Well, um, interestingly, none of these, uh, as they looked at patient satisfaction, patients were most satisfied with endoscopy first. Really? Yeah. People liked, apparently, to have things done. They come in, they're worried about this. Everybody worries about cancer. Let's have the endoscopy done first. Um, what they did, none of these studies actually assessed patient satisfaction, though, with or dissatisfaction with symptom-based management. So we don't really, why they didn't do that, I don't know. Of course, you've got to realize this is all done in the GI world, so we've got to do things to people. We're not just going to treat their symptoms, maybe, but... Wow. <laughs> so let's just stop for a second and talk about symptom-based management. What do you recommend? So symptom-based management is clearly lifestyle. Uh, you know, like most things in medicine, if we can actually think about uh, lifestyle management, it's, it's looking at uh, what are the medications people are perhaps taking, uh, not wearing uh, uh, particular foods that are bothering them. Unfortunately, chocolate's right up there, and I love chocolate. Mm -hmm. uh, hot, spicy food, alcohol, not having anything to eat or drink um, a couple of hours before bedtime. Uh, not lying flat uh, after eating or drinking, or if you're having significant problems keeping the head of your head of your bed up. Uh, and then the other thing would be antacids. 
in uh, you know you could use a histamine blocker or a uh, or PPI as, as 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 part of that. A lot of people, by the way, like to use uh, calcium uh, tums things like that. Turns out they really work well, except you get this rebound hyperacidity an hour later. So they're not good for long-term strategies. Frank, I want to circle it back around though to cancer because that's always the thing people worried about. They looked at that in this study and they said, guess what? Of the papers that they looked at here, there was very few uh, that had cancer. So they had, um, in this report, 5,028 people ended up completing the study. They only detected 20 cancers, right? So very low, 0.4% uh, uh, that was done that. So if you're going to do endoscopy on everybody, for a thousand people you do an endoscopy on, you're going to pick up four cancers as part of that. So it's, it's something to be, to be thinking about. It, it makes good sense that uh, endoscopy, while most um, effective, um, probably makes makes the least sense. Um, so Frank, Frank, endoscopy wasn't the most effective, by the way. Oh. Test and treat was the most effective. Endoscopy was just as good. Okay, it was but. just as good. Well, thank you. I appreciate that clarification. Um, and you said use the breath urea test? Yes. So the, that's uh, so then, then that wasn't really part of the study here, but the, they, they looked at breath urea tests, looked at serology, looked at stool testing. Those were all part of the different types of testing that was, again, this is a meta-analysis looking at lots of different studies. What I'm saying is going forward, if you're going to do tests and treat, uh, which seems to be uh, what's recommended, and that's actually been, by the way, been previously endorsed uh, by the national guidelines here, that um, the, uh, again, in the absence of red flags, that the testing you're doing is with the urea breath testing uh, rather than uh, serology or, 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 or stool testing. And I'm assuming that when they're H. pylori positive, you're using uh, a cocktail to address that. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And there's several cocktails that have been proven effective uh, for, for that. Yeah. All right, Bob. Well, um, this sounds like very good data. It's very reassuring to think that you can do the testing, treat empirically. You don't have to subject the patient to the discomfort um, or risks associated with endoscopy and feel very, very comfortable that your chance of missing a cancer is extremely low. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, you know, this is like anything, if, if, if patients aren't responding the way you think they are, there's a hint of some of these red flags, then keep that in the back of your mind. But up front, no, not at all. Great. Thanks again. Practice pointer. In patients with dyspepsia, test for H. pylori and treat accordingly, reserving upper endoscopy for those with dysphagia, anemia, weight loss, or other red flags, or those who don't get better with initial empiric treatment. Join us next time when we talk about the influence of non-nutritive sweeteners on mortality and obesity. Join Dr. Domino for his keynote address at PrimeMed South, a medical education conference and exhibition in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, February 6th through the 9th, where you can earn up to 24 credits. View the agenda and register at www.primed.com south. Hope to see you there. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by PrimeMed. To claim credit and receive additional information about the article referenced in today's episode, visit primemed.com slash podcast and see you next week.